welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Today on the show, I have a repeat guest, Aaron Hector, who's come on to talk about Canada's newest registered account, the FHSA, the First Home Savings Account. And we'll get into how it works and why I'm not a fan <laughs> shortly. And with that, here's my interview with Aaron. Aaron, thanks for taking the time. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now, you've been here before, but for those who didn't listen to your, uh, your masterclass on oldie security, tell us a little about yourself and uh, what it is you do. Sure. So I am a financial planner. Uh, I work with a firm called CWB Wealth. I work primarily with individual clients and family direct client relationships, I guess you could say, in a financial planning, estate planning, tax prep, that kind of capacity. And then our firm also provides uh, other services to kind of overlay the, the, the total offering to our clients. Excellent. So brought you on today uh, to talk about uh, the newest registered account that we have, even though it's not an R in front of it, anything that's registered with the government's a registered account, the first home savings account. So let's start off by talking to talking about what it is. Sure. So the FHSA is a home that's really designed to help people save for buying, buying their first house. So it pulls characteristics from both an RRSP and a TFSA, essentially. So when you make contributions, you get a tax deduction on the front end, just like an RRSP. Following that, you can invest the money for up to 15 years, but up really up until the point you buy your home. All the investment return through that time period, through the holding period, is totally tax-free. And if you do ultimately buy a house, it comes out as a withdrawal tax-free as well. So you can kind of see how it operates both as an RRSP and a tax-free savings account. And there's there's certain restrictions on how much you can put in. Uh, so you can put up to $40,000 in your lifetime, but you can only put $8,000 per year. All right, so $8,000 a year gets deducted, grows tax-sheltered, comes out tax-free. It's funny, when they named this thing the FHSA, I was like, they pretty much, it, it's almost identical to the HSA in the US, the health savings account, in its tax, it's deductible and it's tax free. Only they use it for healthcare, not for housing. And of course, they mm -hmm. threw an F in front of it. So it's it's very it's any American listeners. It is very similar to FHSA. So an HSA, except for the fact that we get our healthcare paid for, you don't. And housing is a bigger concern here than it is there. If you don't believe me, take a look at a chart. Crazy. Anyway, so so basically, that's the that's the crux of it. Now, I will take a diatribe here and say this is my least favorite account ever because. Could have been the same thing could have been accomplished by expanding the RSP limit and changing the home buyer's plan. And we would have no need for the administration of a new account. And also accessibility and affordability are two separate things. This does nothing for affordability. It does help accessibility, but that will potentially just add more pressure to pricing. Anyway, that's my diatribe. So let's talk about the, the things to be aware of with this, right? So this is like a TFSA RSP investing's the same, no other catches there, right? Yeah, yeah, no, same investment options uh, within the account. That's that's true. Now, one of the things that always happens when these new accounts come out is that invariably people don't understand the rules, open them when they shouldn't, fund them the ways they shouldn't, 
let's talk about what happens and what people need to know about so that they don't go sideways on this or go wrong on this and what the penalties are. So, so first off, who's eligible for this? Sure. So you need to be a Canadian resident, not a Canadian citizen, Canadian resident, which is uh, important not to confuse those. Uh, you have to be at least uh, 18 years old. Uh, you can't be older than 71. So the timeline is really the same timeline as an RSP 1871. And you need to be deemed a first-time home buyer, which is the definition on that isn't really that you've never owned a home. It means that in the current year or in the prior four years, you haven't owned a home that you're actually living in. So if you're a renter, but you also own a rental property, that's actually fine. It, it depends on where you live. And, and I guess one more thing on that, you get captured also if your spouse or common law partner owns a property that you're living in as well. So it doesn't have to be your direct ownership. It could be a connected ownership in that way. Yeah, that was a loophole in the original legislation is it basically looked like spouses who, who weren't on title were going to be able to, to use this for a second home, right? Um, right? But luckily, well, luckily, depending on how you think feel about it, it's uh, it's basically, it's not a case anymore. So so bottom line is, is that if you don't own a home or your spouse doesn't own a home, then you are eligible for this as long as a Canadian resident. Keep that in mind. I once had a non-resident client contributing to a TFSA. That did not go over well with CRM. So you got to be living here. Okay, so that's who's eligible for it. And also you mentioned renter. Now you said renter, basically I can have whole, owned one in the past. And then as long as I haven't owned one in four years, then I basically can do it. Now that said, so people don't get confused, you only have 40,000 in lifetime room, right? I can't go doing this twice, like buy a house, use this, yeah, buy it's, a it's house. A one time. Yeah, one time. One time so, per year length, that's correct. Exactly. So bottom line is you're only getting 40 grand in room total over your lifetime. Okay, so let's also talk about funding this. Okay, so actually, we'll, we'll keep staying on the penalty side for this. So let's say I, I open one of these things up and I'm not eligible. What happens? Right. So basically, when you're found out, I'm confident you would be found out. The status of that account as being a first home savings account would be revoked back to the date of your account opening. The result of that is that any deduction that you would have received is going to get pulled back. Any income earned in the account is going to get taxed for the year that you earned it. So think of maybe maybe it's a couple of years until you figure out you're going to have to go backwards, report income on prior year returns. Uh, there could be some interest and penalties associated with that as well. I haven't seen anywhere where they actually apply a, like a specific penalty other than the change in the taxation. The other thing, we, we haven't touched on this yet. I'm sure we will, but there's some kind of sideways transfer opportunities between registered accounts. So you can take money that's currently inside your RSP and move that into your FHSA. You don't get a second deduction for that because you already got one when you first made your RSP contribution, but it does let you ultimately take the money out of your FHSA tax-free. So for someone who maybe doesn't have a lot of spare cash, that's a way to use this program without making kind of brand new contributions. But the reason I bring this up is in the situation where you shouldn't have opened the FHSA to begin with and the status has been revoked. Mm -hmm. If you had transferred money from your RSP into your FHSA, they're also going to go back and ding you on that and deem that to be a taxable RSP withdrawal. So th th those that's are kind of the, the main repercussions there. And that's not that's punitive, right? So is it, is it a taxable draw on the year you made it or is it a taxable draw on the year that they discover it? Uh, pretty sure it's the year that you made it. Yeah. So, I mean, whatever tax savings you have, which is 53% or 50-ish percent is four grand. I mean, these aren't, these are 
eight thousand dollar contributions, right? So it won't get that huge. But you know, you get you get dinged with a twenty thousand dollar tax bill because you put money into an account that you shouldn't have, and no one's having a good day that day. No, that's right. Good stuff. So so yeah. So but so Quest Trade is the first. <laughs> Quest Trade is the yeah. first one to start offerings in Canada. And uh, you know, out of curiosity, I I was like. I decided I was I was going to go through the application process. Now I own a home, so I was never going to actually click that final button to submit it. But I was curious as to what that was going to look like, and I was shocked by the fact that there was nowhere in plain language, in in any easy to understand way, where they outlined what the eligibility criteria was. So that again, Canadian resident, age eighteen to seventy-one, first-time home buyer. All they did was in a list a very small print uh, is like the second from the bottom bullet point. They referenced a, a specific part of the income tax act to say, confirm your qual, <laughs> your eligibility. I mean, how many yeah, people? Are, yeah. Who's going to, who's going to get that far to actually read that. And if they even read it, are people going to understand what they're looking at? So it was just surprising. Uh, it's uh, not that surprising. I mean, I also hope that some of these institutions, although I doubt it because I know how older systems are put in, basically bumpers, like don't allow people to make more than an $8,000 contribution, right? That's, yeah. that's, that's another concern, right? So, so yeah, so bottom line is what you're saying is the first, the first vendor, I'm sure they won't be the only ones who don't take ownership over the due diligence of making sure that you are absolutely eligible and make a caveat emptor. But the reality is, is that it's going to be very easy to run afoul of this, of this qualification rule. If you don't read the small print and you don't know for sure that you're exalt, you're, you're eligible. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. So all right, so we cover what happens when it goes wrong. And of course, when it goes right, straightforward. You take it out to basically buy your house. All right, now let's talk That's about funding this. I can always make a contribution, but I can also transfer money from an RSP. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So again, if you if you don't have a bunch of just free cash lying around, but you do have like maybe over the prior years, you've just been plowing all your savings into an RSP. And then all of a sudden there's this new account uh, that you want to take advantage of, but you just don't have the free cash to do it. And maybe you have a, a home purchase that's on the horizon. Well, now you can basically get money out of your RSP tax-free by going sideways RSP to FHSA and then making a qualified withdrawal that way. So it's it will help some people, I guess, who maybe don't want to use the home buyer's plan because they don't want the repayments. Canada's version of the backdoor Roth. Of course, it has to do with housing. Uh, so yes, yeah, so exactly. We'll be able to move that over, which is good. Uh, and especially if, you know, for whatever reason, you can't contribute to both throughout the course of the year, contribute to the wrong wrong one. Makes a lot of sense, but it's still limited to eight grand per year, right? I can't just go from, I can't just transfer 40 over from my RSP. Yeah, that's right. And and if you do take money out of your RSP to move it over, that doesn't all of a sudden create more RSP room. You know, you yes. kind of had your one shot to put it in your RSP and, and that's all you got. Now you can you can also go the other direction. So if you start with making fresh contributions to your FHSA, ultimately, you know, maybe you just marry someone who has a house already, you know, right? Get yeah. sour on on buying a home, or for whatever reason that home ownership goal doesn't come to fruition. Ultimately, the rules allow you to shift the money into your RSP, kind of a tax neutral basis, and then just leave it in your RSP until years down the road in retirement, you it comes out as a regular RSP or RIF withdrawal. Well, let's also face it. I mean, it's interesting because the for someone who has no intention of buying, just being a renter, right? They just been handed forty thousand dollars deductible room now that no one else is going that buyer that owners don't. Absolutely, yeah. Right? 
if anything, I would argue maybe the smarter move for them is to contribute to the FHSA first before an RSP because the RSP room will carry forward and they could always catch up in the future in lump sums, whereas the eight grand per, per year cap is much more limiting. That's right. Yeah, I would agree with that, um, yeah. that sequence as well. But I would say that it is unfortunate, though, that going back to your statement earlier about the fact that if I shift money from my RSP to my, T, to my FHSA, that counts as RSP room, not FHSA room. And if I now take money out, I'm never going to benefit from that increased deduction amount. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yes. I'm yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I think, I think, yeah, if anything, it, it's, it's unfortunate. Those who don't have the money at a time, they've had the money earlier, but not now, they basically are not going to be denied of, of 40,000 worth of actual de- contribution room, which is unfortunate. Yeah, but so, it, I mean, it, it's so there's the thing is, is that there's a, there's a lot more nuance than people are, are giving credit to this thing, right? I mean, oh, there's so, you know, so much nuance, I, I tell you. Yeah, there really yeah. is. I mean, we just identified like people listening here must have been like, wow, you're kidding me. Like, first off, I could easily screw this up. Maybe I'm eligible. Maybe I'm not. People aren't going to tell me I'm not eligible and I could get penalties for that. And then it all gets reversed and I pay tax. And then if I do an RSP transfer, because maybe that's what I want to do, then I, I don't get 40. I don't get an additional deduction. I lose that going forward. And it's so let's also cover what happens if I never buy a house, right? If I never buy a house, um, how long can this thing stay open? Right. So you've got 15 years from when you first open the account. Well, to the to the December 31st of that 15th year, I guess. And you have two choices, I guess. One is you can you can always just anytime you can take your money back. You can make a withdrawal. And if you're, if it's not kind of in combination with the home purchase, uh, it's not going to come out tax free. It's going to come out as a taxable withdrawal. But you do always have that choice. But if you get to the end of the 15 year timeline and you don't want to take the tax hit by just withdrawing all the money, then you shift it over into your RSP and you push the tax down the road. Fair enough. Yeah. So, I mean, it becomes effectively for anyone who's not going to buy, it's an effectively a new RSP 40K altogether, really. Now, the that's for people who get to that age. The 15-year the one's an interesting one because I feel like it's it it's probably enough room for most. I mean, I can already foresee that, and I've already had clients inquire about this, about their kids who are like 18 opening these things up or going to be 18 opening these things up, which is which is true and doable, right? Which we'll get into one of the dangers of that in a second. But that gives them until they're about 33, right? That's right. There are plenty of people I know who, for various career choices and whatnot, wouldn't buy their house for for at 33 for the first year. I mean, like I think of people cool. I know who were in academia, right? Like they they basically did undergrad, did their graduate degree, and then basically worked for a little bit, and then went back to went back to do a, a PhD. And when you're when you're doing a PhD, you're kind of nomadic for a while, right? Or you, well, sorry, when you've done a PhD, you're kind of nomadic trying to find the university is going to take you in for a long period of time. So I feel like we're going to have in 15 years time, a bunch of people who are, you know, not a, not the majority of the population, but a big, but a segment, we're going to be forced to make that decision because, hey, it, time the clocks run out. Yeah. And, and I would say that that's even more true in your neck of the woods or Vancouver, Victoria areas than in Calgary, where I am, just because of general affordability. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. So even if they're not, uh, even if they're just like average to low income earners in their career choice, right? Like building up to buy that. It's just going to take a while. So, and what happens, I mean, and if they basically miss that 15 year cutoff, it'll probably lead to deregistration and a full taxation of that amount. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or, or, or I guess you just, you could look at again, going into your RSP and then just deferring that, that tax. And then maybe I guess the, the saving grace is that as of now, you can still participate in the home buyer plan. 
yeah, you can do both. And for you know, that's a $35,000 loan from your house that you have to pay back over 15 years, sorry, from your RSP. But I mean, that's assuming that people catch the fact that the 15-year clock ran out, right? Like yeah. the question is how much leeway and grace are they going to be given? This uh, is really what I wonder about. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's a problem for 15 years from now, but nevertheless. Now, uh, let's talk about, I said there's, there's reasons maybe why you wouldn't want to give an 18-year-old eight grand a year into an account. I don't know about you, but I'm not big in putting money in the hands of young adults until they've proven that they can handle it. Ever? Yeah, I'm curious. Do you have any horror stories of kids in, in trust for accounts going sideways? Mm, not yet. Luckily enough, I, it hasn't come across my desk, but I, I know there's plenty of risks there. Yeah, I, I haven't had any haven't had any you know, 18 year olds demanding access to money in, in trust for accounts or anything like that up, up until now. Neither have I, but I've, I've seen it happen elsewhere, uh, at least on my practice. But so just uh, where we're alluding to is the end of the day, you give your kids eight, you give your kids money to put in that account. It's theirs. It's theirs. And in addition to that, I know people say, well, yeah, but it's with my advisor. Your advisor can't legally tell you about it after 18. If they do, that's a privacy violation and your kids got their head. And that's the reality of it. And so it's theirs. I, I always say never, never put a penny in their hands until you're ready to see it disappear. Yeah, that's a very yeah. good point. Yeah. So uh, what other nuances or concerns should people be aware of and, wor and worried about? Uh, so, so one thing, just timing is pretty important when you actually do buy your house. So you, you can make a withdrawal so long as you have a purchase agreement to close on a home. And they give you a lot, of, a lot of lead time here. They give you until October of the next year. So in theory, you could be January 2024 with a closing date of September 2025. And like I've never seen a purchase agreement that extends that far, but that that's the possibilities that we're talking about. But on the side where you could maybe make a mistake is if you are rushing and it's it's a quick sale and you get possession and the funding of it is is maybe an afterthought, like you got other other sources. If you wait longer than thirty days after you've closed, you're no no longer eligible for a tax free withdrawal. So there, there's a lot of stuff going on in your life in those moments. I mean, geez, you're working with a mortgage broker. Lots of people know how stressful that can be. Movers, packing up all your stuff, you know, getting getting new place rekeyed. I mean, there's so much going on. If you weren't like strictly relying on this money for a down payment or something, it might just slip through the cracks. And then you're you're more than 30 days after and you've lost your opportunity like that that's one that i think will happen to people and oh it's going to be it's going to be rough well yeah exactly i mean the timing oh yeah because i mean you might not be looking for that money to be used specifically for the down payment right it's simply the all the additional costs that go with it right to renovate something to buy furniture moving is my single least favorite thing in the world to do and i gotta tell you that that is that is very easy to slip by 30 days like very oh. easy 30 so, days it's a difficult one. It's a difficult yeah. one. So another nuance is just on the estate side. So you can name a beneficiary, successor holder. So a successor holder can only be your spouse or common law, but um, and and that's probably the what you want to do so that if you pass, then your spouse assumes the account as an FHSA rather than just liquidating the account and getting the money. But on the beneficiary side, this is really interesting. Very surprising that they set this up. Most people are familiar with how beneficiaries work with RRSPs. So if, if it's not your spouse, you name beneficiary, they get the full market value of the account and the tax is dealt with by the deceased on the deceased final tax return. So there's a mismatch of yeah. the money goes one way, the tax goes the other way. This happens uh, all the time when people leave an RSP behind to one kid and something else to another kid. And now they think it was like they were both worth 250 
uh-uh, because yeah. now the estate that other kid has to clear has the tax bill for that one kid's 250. So, so if you name someone who's not your spouse as the beneficiary of your FHSA, they get the money, but they pay the tax too. The tax leaves the original account holder not dealt with in the final tax return of the deceased. The tax is paid by the beneficiary. So it's kind of the opposite tax treatment here. I think that's going to throw people for a loop when they're doing that's a their weird one because it could very well be that the tax situation is worse, right? It could very well be that someone, you know, God forbid, a, a young adult basically who's got this in there, leaves it to their parents, parents in prime mm-hmm. earning years. And now suddenly the tax bill on the estate would have been 20% and it gets taxed at 53 or 50, mm-hmm. uh, 55, whatever province they're in. That is, yeah. yeah I mean, from a minimum, from an admin standpoint, I kind of get it being a little bit easier and it'll prevent, you just traded one estate problem for a different type of estate problem. But now you have to consider which way is which. So just, yeah. it's one of those things, it's it's a wrinkle. Well, it's interesting because if you then in turn just default to the estate, then suddenly you're back to the original treatment of an RSP and it's, well, it's gotta be probated, sure. But at the same time now, you may actually, it might be a tax advantage to leave it to your estate, which is a yeah, weird one to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's there's a bunch of wrinkles to this and it's still new and probably see some legislative changes when some of these realities start to come to bear. So yeah, so any any last thoughts, that, uh, big things we should be aware of? Well, how nitty gritty into like weird stuff do you want to get? Let's get weird. Okay, so there's, there's just some situational things you could look at. Like you could even look at this account from an income splitting standpoint. There's really no attribution. So if if you gift your lower income spouse money, they invested in their FHSA, ultimately, it could come out tax free if you buy a house. But if you don't, and it's taxable, it's taxed to them all all the income earnings over that period of time goes back to the original contributing tax. spouse. Yeah, to the to the it, there is no tax attribution. So you can kind of just Oh, it's, sorry. It's the, it's the owning the spouse who owns it, not the contributor. Yeah, there is no attribution. Huh. So uh, that so, is that's interesting because normally other situations it would go back to the contributing spouse. So your non-income earning spouse, in theory, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's an edge case because like odds are you're probably going to use the place buy a place, Correct. but if not, then you just found a way to move from high income, high tax to no tax. <laughs> yeah, uh, for for older people too, if you went um, say say you're sixty five between 65 and 70, if I put money in my FHSA, I'd have that option to roll it over into a into a RIF. If I'm 65 and over, I make a withdrawal from my RIF. All of a sudden, 50% of that withdrawal becomes eligible for income splitting. So again, there's $40,000 over five years that you could look at splitting. So you, you kind of off, you get the deduction for 40,000. Your spouse ends up taking half of that as income when it's withdrawn. So again, there's a couple of well, they're, they're edge cases, but there's some income splitting opportunity here, depending on how important that is to, to your situation. And yeah, so this is a this is just a, a weird one. I was talking to someone on Twitter about this today, actually. But the way that they've set this up is the only times that really matter for you to be a first-time homebuyer is one, when you open the account. So you have to be a first-time homebuyer when you open the account, the only other time that it makes a difference is when you try and make a tax-free qualifying withdrawal. Okay. So let's just think about that. If you are two years into this and you buy a home, but you don't do the tax-free withdrawal, you can keep your FHSA account open, continue to make further contributions, even after you've become a homeowner. And then eventually you move it into your RSP, right? So 
It's like Ooh, so that weird cool. that they've well, allowed for this. I've got one. I got one. Uh, another one for you, right? So first off, again, that is a loophole that needs to be closed down, right? It should be oh, based on the yeah, contribution. Now, here's the other piece of this. In theory, you could buy a place, keep the account, sell the place, wait four years, buy another place, and then make the withdrawal. Now, I mean, that sounds a little bit farcical, but let's not forget that some people get relocated a lot for work, right? And maybe they're, in some cases, well, look at my own, some members of my own family who basically got moved to the US for a period of time and wouldn't count for the US, but you know, got moved someplace for a period of time. Company was willing to basically put a floor into the value of their home for sale and pay for all the moving costs because they weren't executive. So, and they weren't sure how long they were going to be there. But in theory, in a situation like that, it would basically work out fine, right? Like they they would be able to, you know, I'm, this is not going to be our forever home. We plan on moving back to wherever it is. They'd be able to use it. So that is, that that one's less of a loophole, right? It's more so the continued contributions while you're there. That is a big loophole. Yeah, and I, I have not, I've looked, I haven't seen a single thing that would restrict you from doing that. So just really peculiar. That's going to be a tax emission at some point. So yeah, it's a, that is a peculiar one. Mm-hmm. The other thing I was talking to you off offline a couple of days ago, and you called me a money launder because I, I thought of this idea where uh, if you had money in your R, it's it's like, how do you get a double deduction? Yes. So you get a deduction when you make an RSP contribution. And then on the same money, you could, in theory, withdraw it through the home buyer's plan. It's in your bank account. Then you take that money, deposit it into your FHSA, get a second deduction. Yep. And then withdraw it through the FHSA program tax free. Two deductions on the same money. You could then take that's that money, pay off your home buyer's plan if, if you wanted to. I mean, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's 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 kind of a weird one. But. It's it's a weird one. I mean, like here's the thing: these are edge cases, and the reality is, is the vast majority of people are going to use it for the intended cause. Uh, I do believe that, that the contribution loophole is a, is a weird one that really needs to be closed. But otherwise, everything else, I think, is an, a bit of inherent flexibility to it. Let's also discuss one last topic before we before we finish up, and that's what happens to American citizens. One of my favorite topics. Uh, mm-hmm. Who opened these things? Sorry, people. <laughs> so no deduction. Uh, I can't see you getting a deduction. No, on your no U.S. Way. tax return. Yeah. yeah. No, no chance on your U.S. taxes. I would expect you you have to be careful what you invest in. So PFIX uh, likely to be an issue would be my guess. Same rules uh, with not registered account with taxable accounts. Yeah, yeah. They're not going to consider this in the same way that they do as an RSP. I, that's going to take no. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, it'll take like 25-30 30 years for them to recognize it. So that, that'd be a main thing, I guess. If you expatriate and you leave Canada, you're no longer a resident, uh, make a withdrawal, you're going to have your withholding, your non-resident withholding tax issues. Uh, maybe not well, issues. Income well. every year too will be taxable, right? And then it'll it'll likely require a trust filing. So now we're back in the... It's like a TFSA. It's like a TFSA. Now that's not to say you shouldn't use it, right? Like, and I've published on this before. Look, it's a cost benefit, right? Like, Cost is it's going to cost you a couple hundred bucks to file a return. It's not taxable in, in in the U.S., but it's not taxable in Canada, but it's taxable in the U.S. But odds are you probably already have enough foreign tax credits. So you're not going to pay any, a penny on it. So it's really the filing fees the big issue. Now, a filing fee on an eight thousand dollar account of two hundred bucks is a pretty substantial incremental cost. On forty thousand dollars, it's still a pretty substantial incremental cost, right? So. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it makes sense for anyone who's looking to buy in the short term because it's, I would I would totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll let me let me reframe that. High income earners looking to buy in the short term probably does make sense because deduction versus the the carrying cost. People near the lower bracket makes absolutely no sense because they'll probably save as much in tax as they do in carrying cost. Yeah. 
maybe yeah. maybe there's some math merits if you were thinking about holding it for 15 years at the 40,000 level but I don't know. It, it's a complication. It, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, like we don't we don't even open up our uh, TFSAs for clients until they're probably well north of fifty thousand in room uh, yeah. because the math almost good cost. And it's like, well, we're not going to add an MER. You know, it's, I always say it's like adding another measurement expense ratio, but kind of of a, a couple percentage points on it. Not worth yeah. it. No, that's right. Yep. So, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate this. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about your stuff? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Aaron Hector CFP. I'm on LinkedIn. My corporate website has my bio too, uh, CWB Wealth. Excellent. And like, just like myself, Aaron does his best damage on Twitter. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Cheers. So that was today's episode of Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. Hope you uh, enjoy that. And I hope you understand that this very simple looking account actually has a lot of complexities. It's very easy to go sideways. So use it when you qualify. Be careful with it when you are looking to take money out. Make sure you do it right get the right advice. And I will unfortunately say in this case, the right advice is going to be hard to find right now because it's so brand new, but give it time. By the time you probably go to you start one today and looking to buy in a few years, I'm sure we'll work out these bugs, but uh, be careful. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever is your, your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you. 